0: Good morning. It's hard to believe it was a week ago we were fighting the rains of the hurricane to get over here, but uh, it's been a full week, hasn't it? It's good to see everyone survived all right and is back, and um, we need to continue to pray for the brethren in the New Orleans area. Interesting that the, the areas that they did all that work to try to protect were okay, but right on the other side of that wall is just disaster, very reminiscent of what they suffered last time. Uh, Brother Bob Brown is one of the full-time workers in that area. And several times over the last several years, um, he has talked about the struggles that they've had. They've rebuilt the assembly, many of the people's homes. Uh, some have had to relocate. But even though seven years have gone by, he said they've never really fully recovered from the the losses that were sustained in their community. A lot of people have left the area, so there's a lot of empty homes they're just kind of like ghost towns. Um, the economy has suffered greatly. Jobs are harder to come by because there's less people there to hire. And then you consider the uh, the oil spill just a few years ago that uh, was a large part of employing people there. And uh, that really kind of shut things down even further. And uh, they've just really been struggling. Um and uh, uh, he has really appreciated and expressed from the saints there over the years the the appreciation for prayers for them, and we should remember to do that yet again. And I know a lot of people came to help. Uh, we were very close to being able to do that ourselves, and a group up to help after Katrina went through in oh, uh, was it 7? 05. 05, seven? Oh five, years ago. Um, but I don't know whether they'll need something like that again. We need to wait, watch, and pray but <clears throat> good to see everyone out this morning. We are continuing our study in the book of Genesis, and so if you'll turn with me to Genesis uh, 46 and 47 is our passage. Now, we're kind of continuing the story, so there's always more that's that's just happened that kind of feeds into what we're studying. And um, so we found that Joseph, having been put in place of Uh, authority in Egypt right under Pharaoh himself has been in place now to help Egypt and all the known world at that time to make it through the famine that God had predicted and told them about through the dreams of Pharaoh that Joseph had interpreted saying that there would be seven years of great abundance but then seven years of famine. And it was during these first two years of famine that even Joseph's family all the way up in the land of Canaan the land we now call Israel today they themselves were suffering great famine and so they heard that there was food in Egypt. The brothers went down to get some food. Joseph recognized them and put them through some tests. Have they changed? Can I really tell them who I am or or, or are they still the same sneaky, conniving, evil-hearted brothers that sold me into slavery some 17 years ago? And he put them through this test. He gave great prominence and attention to Benjamin to see if they would become jealous. He placed that silver cup in in, in Benjamin's sack so that when he would be arrested and sought to be brought back to Egypt to be a slave forever for for Pharaoh, would they be glad to see it happen out of their jealousy like they did with Joseph or would they actually exhibit a different behavior? And as we learned last week, it was quite a different Response: Judah himself, who was one of the key players in selling Joseph off as a slave, came forward and said, Take me instead. I've given my father a promise with my own life that I will bring him back safely. And if you're going to keep someone, keep me, so that he can go back to my father, so that my father's heart will not be broken. And with that, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. He He confessed, I am Joseph. And so come and draw near to me. And he wept on his brothers. And they talked. And he sent them home, as we'll read today, to bring their father back. He told them the the famine is yet for another five years. So come. Come here and I will take care of you. What a blessed promise, right? And uh, so continuing, let's pick up with the last verse there in chapter 45. When Israel, Jacob the father of Joseph says, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And so... He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And so they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. His sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanok. Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Job, and Shim- Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padanaram with his daughter Dinah. All the persons, his sons and his daughters, were 33. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodai, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Jimna. Ishua, Isui, Beriah, and Sira, their sister. And the sons of Beriah were Heber and Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph, in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. The sons of Benjamin were Bila, Beker, Ashbel, Gira, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel, whom were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan was Hushim. The sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shelem. These were the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body besides Jacob's sons, wives, were sixty-six persons in all, and the sons of Joseph were born to him in e- who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. all the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were seventy. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan, Have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought flocks, their herds, and all that they have. And so it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? that you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. May God bless the reading of his word. Shall we pray? Oh, Heavenly Father, Thank you for giving us your word once again. Thank you for this privilege we have to come together to open it and to read it. To ponder the history that is here. The lessons that are here. The revelation of who you are that's here. The revelation of who we are that's here. And show us, Lord, how you would seek to apply these things to our own hearts and lives today for each of us are in different places in our personal lives and have different needs. And yet, Lord, your word reminds us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God yourself and is profitable for our teaching, for our correction, for our rebuke and instruction, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, no matter where we are in our lives, no matter where we are in this journey, that you might meet us here, that you might instruct us and draw us close. We thank you for your heart that's revealed there, and we just pray that you would prepare our hearts now to receive it, for your honor and glory, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So the journey has begun. Israel started out from Canaan and made his way to Egypt. But before we get so much into the journey, I just would highlight one of the things that were presented by our brother Rogers last week concerning this this story of Joseph when he would reveal himself to his brothers. And we talked about it a bit in our Lord's Supper this morning, this idea that God desires us to be near Him. Because we don't start off near Him, do we? The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And our sin has separated us from God. And, And just like there was this season in the life of Joseph where he was separated from his family, and as far as his father was concerned... He was as good as dead, but he was alive, wasn't he? And you know, sometimes we can be deceived by the enemy into forgetting this spiritually how dead we are. The world would try to persuade us, as the worldly wise man persuaded Pilgrim in his traveling on his life journey, that, "Oh, there's an easy place to get rid of that burden of your sin. You need to go see Worldly Wise Man." You need to go up to the town of morality, uh, up Mount Sinai to where as you learn the law and you're able to try to do the law that you can ease that conscience of yours that tells you how bad off you are because you've broken God's law. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so many people are still trying to be good enough to kind of fix the problem between them and God that they might draw near. But the Bible says it's irreparable by us. But just as God would take steps to send His Son into this world to, to take the place on the cross to pay for our sin, right? we see that Joseph was the one who made it possible for this restoration to take place between his brothers and himself. And he exposed his own identity and said, I am your brother and I want you to come and draw near. And that's the heart of the Lord towards us as humans who've been separated by our sin come near to me that I may be with you that you might be with me and we read those words back in chapter 45 and he says these words to them in verse 9 hurry and go up to my father and say to him thus says your son Joseph God has made me Lord of all Egypt come down to me and do not tarry and you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And so we see there's an invitation from Joseph, right, to come to Egypt, to, to, to overcome this separation. He says, and you will dwell with me in this land of Goshen. The best of the land of Egypt was Goshen. He said, you'll dwell with me there and you shall be near to me and I will provide for you. And you know, that invitation that Joseph gave to his family is the same invitation that God has given to us as sinners, isn't it? Jesus said it, John, uh, Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest and come take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And when we respond to that invitation and we say I will go, I will I will come to Jesus, then we can experience those same things to dwell not just in the best of the land here, right, but in another land in 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 the eternal land in the glories of heaven where the Lord himself dwells and we will dwell with him and he will provide for us and he will be our are all in all in that place, right? And that, that's the answer that Jacob gave. That It says at the end of chapter 45, when Israel, he had doubts, and, 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 he, and, he, and he couldn't hardly believe the news that Joseph was really alive, that this invitation was really from him. And it wasn't until he saw the carts that had come to make preparation for him. It wasn't just the word of those brothers coming back, but there was evidence from Joseph himself and so he said, it is enough. Joseph is still alive and I will go to him. And you know, if you've never received that invitation and responded as Jacob did that day and said, it is enough, enough arguing, enough doubting, I will put my trust in Jesus and I will go to him for salvation. The Bible says you too will experience the the blessing of having your sin forgiven of being able to draw near to him and spend forever with him to dwell with him and let him be our all in all for all eternity it's the only way and so Jacob this old man he said I will go interesting that it's the same words that his mother used when Isaac's when when Abraham's servant came to find a bride for Isaac and he said will you go and she said I will go And she received the invitation. It's a picture of the church. That's why I know the Lord is just giving us this, this grand illustration. And whether you're old or young today, if you've never trusted in Christ, I plead with you to do it today. Because there's no other way. And you'll never regret it. No one here who's ever done that has ever regretted it. And so come to Him today. To those who do, what is his instruction for us? What happens as he takes this journey? See, Israel, he says in chapter 46, took his journey. This, 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 many times this the illustration is used for life itself, for you and for me. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about running the race that God has set before us. Our life is a long-distance journey from where we are to where we will meet the Lord. And when you know the Lord is your Savior, praise God, He travels with us in that journey. And, and the things that we're going to see Israel experience on this journey are pictures of what God would like to do in your and my life along this journey as well. And so <clears throat> let us note thou, Let us note then what we, what we see about this journey that Israel takes. It says that He took His journey with all that He had. And I thought to myself, okay, you know, this is a good lesson for us. If he had had any idea of a plan B, maybe it won't work out so well. I'm just going to leave my stuff. some of my stuff here. I'll come back to it. I won't have to carry it all so far. No. It says he journeyed with all that he had. There was no thought of plan B. And you know, that's what it says of Abraham in, 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 in all these that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as those who are examples to us of faith. In our Lord, it says that when they went, Abraham especially, it says that he was seeking a city whose foundations and builder and maker was God. And if they had had their mind, verse 15, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now see, it says they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, and therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared He has prepared a city for them. And, you know, sometimes I meet people who say, well, you know, I gave that Jesus thing a chance, but it didn't work. I'll tell you why it didn't work. They never really came to Him. They never really let go of their plan B. The message of Jesus Christ is forsaking all I trust in Him. That's a little acrostic sometimes used for the word faith. Forsaking all I trust in Him. And, and, and whatever it is that we think might be what we need to get ourselves back right with God, we can't hold on to any of it. Israel said He journeyed, leaving it all behind, or excuse me, not leaving any plan B option. He put His all in this journey to go to Joseph. And when we come to Jesus, that's what we do. We give Him our all. Now people will argue over whether how much of that is is making Him Lord or trusting in Him as Savior. But the reality is, when you give yourself to Christ, you give yourself to Christ. He is your Lord, and you may be disobedient to Him as your Lord, but He's your Lord. You commit yourself to Him. And you're trusting in Him to take that soul that you're entrusting to Him and bring you to the journey's end. Praise God. He brought Israel to his end. And he will bring us to that end. He's promised it to us. And what we're going to see is, as, as Israel begins his journey, he has doubts. Right? It says, as he begins his journey, he comes to Beersheba. Interesting place. It's one of the most southernmost cities in the area of Canaan. Before you leave that land to enter into the territory of Egypt. And perhaps he was having some doubts. Okay, you know, when Abraham was in a time of famine and he went down to Egypt, it didn't go well for him. He wasn't trusting in the Lord. Should I go? Doesn't tell us he asked that question. But it tells us he does stop at this place called Beersheba to have some dealings with God. And this place of Beersheba, the very name, means the well of the oaths. If you recall, the father of Jacob, Isaac was in this land near the borders of the promised land, and he was in conflict with Abimelech, one of the rulers of the neighboring nations, over that land, and Isaac would dig a well, and they would come dig it up and, and, and take it over, and he would go dig out another one of the wells that Abraham had made, and they'd come take it over, and, and there was all this striving, until so finally there was this one place where he was able to dig the well, and he made a covenant with Abimelech that there would be peace amongst them, Isaac turns and worships the Lord, building an altar in Beersheba, near the well of the oath. And here is Jacob now, his son, on his way down to Egypt, and it's at this place, the well of the oath, that he comes and offers sacrifices to God. I have to ask myself, what's the significance of that? Well, we see one significance, right? All the patriarchs, as they, were, as they were, were going through these various parts of their lives, no matter where they went, they did stop and they made altars because their focus was on God and not just their circumstances, not just on them, but they wanted to, to worship God. They wanted to, to, to give Him the rightful place in their lives. But interesting that it's Beersheba here in this passage, the place of the oath, where he makes offerings to God. Could I suggest to you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today that one of the applications of this for you and for me in our lives would be found for us in Romans chapter 12 in the New Testament. Verses 1 and 2. Here is Paul recounting for us the gospel message laying out for us after countless chapters the m- great mercies of God that, that all men are found guilty and dead and there's no man who can be justified before God by the deeds of the flesh, by the works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And <clears throat> at the end of these many chapters, he says to us in chapter 12 of Romans, I beseech you, I plead with you therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. At the very place where we made our oath to God, at that altar, coming back to Christ, in view of the mercies of God through Christ and our salvation, he says, present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We need to do it again, don't we? We came to Him for salvation, offering Him ourselves. Well, have we really put ourselves on the altar? A living sacrifice. Not that we die and our life is done, but to stay there in that place of offering to God. Giving Him our all. And I have to ask myself, well, you know, there was a time when I made that choice. But am I still there? Is my all still on the altar of sacrifice laid? There's a song we sometimes sing about that, isn't it? You'll never be blessed and be perfectly at rest in your heart until all on the altar is laid. And so I would encourage you, as I encourage myself at the same time, to evaluate, how am I doing at following this example? Looking back at that place of oath where I came to know the Lord, where I gave Him myself. Is my all still there? That's what he really wants, isn't it? He wants our hearts, our lives. How many times Jesus was frustrated with the the Pharisees and the religious leaders because they had all this form on the outside, but their hearts were far from him. And in our hearts is our all on the altar. That's hard, isn't it? When I look at where my money goes, is that really where he wants it to go? Have I placed it all on the altar? My time... Is it really going where He wants it to go? What I invest my relationships in? My spare time? My thing? The list goes on, right? Is He really in the first place? Because that's what Jesus deserves. That He might have preeminence in all things. And so it's that place of Beersheba where He, Isaac, offered these sacrifices to God. The God of his father Isaac. He was remembering. See, it's interesting. Israel is this name that God gave him when when Jacob came to a real relationship with God himself. Always before that, it was it was the God of Abraham, your father, the God of my father Isaac. It almost like he didn't really know this God. But but from the time he had that wrestling match with the angel of God himself, and he and he, and he stopped contending with God and just started clinging to God and his mercies, and God gave him this name, Israel, the one who who has uh, power with God because God is now his God. He comes back to and and, and he's it, it, all the wells and the, the, the altars that he made were all about God, his own God now. It's not just Bethel the house of God, but God, the God of Bethel. And and, and now yet, there's this hearkening back to his father Isaac. And so I think that there's a reason for that. And uh, we ought to take note, right? It's, it it, it to remember, it was the place of the oath, and so he makes these sacrifices to God. And here's what I thought was interesting: verse two, verse uh, chapter, uh, verse two, word one. Then, then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night. Now, why didn't God speak to him before that? I mean, he's traveling; he's got these questions. God knows his questions, just like He knew Nicodemus's questions when Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus just kind of cut to the chase and said, "Listen, unless you're born again, you know." He knew it was on Nicodemus' mind. He just went there. But in this case, God waits until Jacob, Israel, makes these sacrifices and then he begins to speak to him. And you know, that's what happened to Moses, isn't it? When you look at the beginning of Exodus where Moses has been hiding in the wilderness for 40 years and, and chapter 3 comes along and, and the people of Egypt are crying out, the Israelites are, are in bondage and, and they, they're, they're longing to be released and, and they're calling upon God and And the angel of the Lord, it says, appears to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And it says, he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and the bush was not consumed. And then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he revealed to him, his plan to send him to Egypt to bring the people back to to Canaan. The same thing's happening here. When Isaac made that offer, those offerings to God, it says, then God spoke to him and called out to him, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. And God further reveals Himself and His purpose for Jacob going forward. And you know, I would suggest again to you today that this is a great example for us. Many of us, not just Megan, wondering about this opportunity of teaching somewhere overseas. But many of us are looking for direction in our lives, aren't we? We're asking God about jobs, about decisions regarding people and places and things. And and we want to know, what does God want me to know? I get the sense here that uh, Jacob really cares this time to do the right thing. How many times he just did his own thing? God said, yes, the older will serve the younger, but he certainly didn't intend for him to steal the blessing from his parents, right? And so he was just doing his own thing because that's what he wanted and he wanted it now. And finally I see Jacob, Israel, a changed person, and he says, he wants to know. And yet God waits for him to make this offering before he reveals it to him. And so the importance of that question, again, is our all back on that altar? Are we really seeking the Lord? Are we willing to receive his direction? Because he says, if we seek him with all of our heart, we will find him, right? And he will be found by us. He knows his plans for us. They're not plans for evil, just like they weren't for Israel when they went into captivity in Jeremiah 29. But here we see he's calling out to the Lord and the Lord answers him. And he says what? I am God, the God of your father, and do not, be, do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there, and I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. So what does God reveal? I <laughs> thought it was interesting. The very same three things that Jacob had reassurance of God from, from the very beginning, When he made that first covenant with God, I will be with you. My presence will be with you. My protection will be with you. My provision will be with you. Look what he says, right? I will make of you a great nation. I will provide for you to cause you to prosper and become a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt. My presence will be with you. I will surely bring you up again. I will protect and guide and oversee your circumstances so that you come back to this place that I promised to you and to your fathers to give you. Now the interesting thing is, just like the other patriarchs in Hebrews chapter 11, it says they they had those promises, they saw them afar off, but never fully experienced them, right? How does this verse end? It says, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. I never quite understood what that meant. One person, I was doing some reading, said perhaps, which is still to this day, they say a Jewish custom, maybe someone here could tell me, is that one of the uh, close relatives will go and close the eyes of the departed to put their hand upon their eyes as they pass into eternity. So what is he telling Jacob? Yes, I will bring you, I will bring your family back again, but Joseph, the son that you long to see, he will be there to put his hand on your eyes. Perhaps he's revealing to him that he's going to die there. But you remember Jacob's dying request? It'll be in our next week's chapter, right? He said, listen, swear to me, I'm going to go to the grave. But promise me that you will take my bones back to Canaan and bury me there with with my family. He believed the promise of God. By faith, he laid hold of them. And he received this encouragement from God. There was the invitation given and the response made. And as he began this journey, bringing all that he had and making offerings to God, and he cries out to God, what happens? God responds with assurance. And how many of us suffer for years lacking assurance of God's purposes in our lives? I was a believer for seven to ten years before someone helped me to have assurance of my salvation based on the Word of God. And I floundered in my walk with God for all that time. And that's not just my experience. I remember Gil Vargas coming here and sharing the testimony with us of his wife who also trusted the Lord young at age but never really moved on in her walk with God because she struggled with assurance of whether she was really saved. And when she finally got it, she could move forward. Do you have it today or is Satan still yanking your chain? You can have that assurance. Over and over again, God assured Jacob of his purposes in his life of his presence, protection, provision. And in this case, once again, he received it. He was strengthened. And it says, he moved on. Jacob arose from Beersheba, in verse 5, and the sons of Israel, they carried their father in these carts, along with the little ones who couldn't go on their own, their wives, and they began to continue on this journey together to the place where they were going to be with Joseph. And they were all going. And the bulk of this chapter is, as we have already read it, Naming these names of those who went. Those names can be kind of tedious, can't they? Uh, and we never would quite know how much we slaughter them. But they're real people. Real people that weren't forgotten. Whose names were recorded as those who made the journey. And praise God, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, your name has been recorded. You may, you may never make it in the newspaper except for your, your obituary. The world may not know anything about you. But our Heavenly Father and our Savior, they know. And your name is written in the Lamb's book of life if you put your trust in Him. And when the books are opened, and that book is opened, we will know and be reassured that we will be safely ushered into eternity with Him. Because we set out on that journey, having given ourselves to Him. And all these names are mentioned, you know... Not all these names actually went, though, did they? They were noticed. For example, verse 12. Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. They were evil in the sight of God, and God took their lives. They never turned to Him. It's a serious matter, isn't it? But they were counted, they were named, they were remembered by God. And so all these persons... Now, there's some people who who will make an issue out of the fact that Verse 26 tells us that all those people, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And yet we read here in verse 27 that the sons of Joseph were born to him in Egypt, were two persons, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. And so they would say there's a contradiction in the Scriptures. But if uh, if you would notice, and there's a couple different ways people total up these numbers, but it says that the persons in verse 26 who went with Jacob were 66 persons. Those who went with Jacob. Well, Joseph was already in Egypt. His two sons were already in Egypt. And Jacob didn't go with Jacob. Jacob was Jacob, right? So all those who went with him were 66. And you add four more and you get 70. Um, anyways, So, there are reasonable responses to these who would cast stones at the word of God. But praise God, they all made it, right? Verse 28, they sent Judah before them to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. The next part is going to bring us into chapter 47. I think I'm going to hold off from going too far into that. Suffice it to say here, okay, they come to Goshen, they send... Judah ahead before him to go to Joseph and he comes to meet them and he brings them to the land of Goshen, the best of the land, that they might be with him there. Then he's going to go bring a message to Pharaoh and come make an introduction. And uh, I want to talk a little bit this evening about this introduction that's made and how Joseph cares for them in the land of Egypt from chapter forty seven but <clears throat> there's something that I was thinking about regarding this journey that I wanted to go back to before we close today. Um, this idea of putting our all on the altar, it's really what God desires. He says in Romans 12 I didn't go back to verse 2 but I had meant to do so. <clears throat> he tells us here what, what happens to us when we make this decision to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. He says it's a holy sacrifice. And holy has several different understandings. Number one it means to be set apart, right? Something that is common can be made holy by setting it apart for a special purpose. And that's what we've done with our lives then, right? We've said, Lord, I'm taking my life, it's just been a common life, but now I'm setting it aside for you as I offer myself to you. But see, when we do that, the Lord makes it holy in another way. He begins to work on us to purge our sins, Right? And uh, none of us like this process, this sandpapering of God to scrape off those rough edges to make us look more like Christ. But that's what he's in the business of doing. And someone prayed this morning, I thought it was good, that we learn to be gracious one with another as we are in this process, right? I may be further along than someone else in some area, but I'm further behind than someone else in another. And it's very easy for us in this process of God making us holy to lose sight of the fact that we're all still in journey, but let's not forget that there is a journey and that we're supposed to be going somewhere, and sometimes we just kind of we forget about like those it said in those in 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 Hebrews that they were not being mindful of what they were leaving behind, but were looking forward to where Christ was bringing them, and you know we need to pray for one another. We need to be gracious with one another. But we need to to really do, I know I do, to to really look hard at how we're doing it at allowing Him to make us holy, acceptable in His sight, purging away those things. You know, it's hard decisions sometimes. Hebrews would say as we go to run this journey that we need to lay aside these weights that tie us down. You don't go run a, a marathon with a backpack and army boots on. Right? We try to cut those things that that hold us back you know sometimes um we need to be careful at how we may be influencing someone else at at hindering them in their journey and um fathers you know we had this this um this fathers day we it was kind of delayed but it was a a day where we 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 encouraged and tried to challenge the men in our midst um you know, Beginning from that movie Courageous About not just being a I'm doing I'm not doing so bad kind of a man to wanting to excel. Having the courage to to break away from the mediocrity of our day to truly run wholeheartedly with Christ. And I guess I'd just like to reissue the challenge to us as men. As husbands, as heads of our homes, to take that calling seriously. Um, you know, we try real hard in our youth ministries to know that we're teaching the Word of God, to know that it's being taught accurately, and to bring along these young ones who don't know the Word to learn it and move on. But you know what? It's not the church's job to do that, it's our job to do that. Deuteronomy chapter 6 calls us as parents and especially as men to take every opportunity to be training up our children, to be discipling them, winning their hearts for Christ, saying, look what God has done in my life. Look what the Lord is doing here in in our family and, and point them to Him. And it's not the norm for our system today. It's not the norm in the church I'm not just saying us, I'm saying in the church at large. We're, we're looking to everyone else to do what God is calling us to, even in the church. Right? Yeah, we're going to keep teaching as best we can the Word of God. But are we reading it together? Are we reading it on our own first, right? But, and this is hard, right? Maybe, maybe we haven't lived up to all that we want to be, and, and, and it's hard after we've failed before our wives for months and maybe years on end, to say, dear, let's let's read the Word of God together this evening. Let's pray. For fear that maybe a hypocrite's going to lead us in the Word of God now, huh? Hopefully that's not the response, but that's a fear. Because I know what it's like to feel that, that how am I going to pray some, try to be something I'm not in front of my wife? But you know what? If I can begin by humbling myself and let down the guard and say, you know, God, I'm here. Like Jacob. look, Think of all the failures Jacob had. But he was now leading his family. Forsaking all. Making the sacrifice to lead his family to Egypt. And how much could they have called him a hypocrite for so many things in his life. But you know, he was finally humbled. And he took a place to lead his family to Egypt. And I don't know what it's like for you. Maybe you feel like, I don't, the, my wife may know the word of God better than me. That's okay. Our, 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 our need is to take the initiative and say, this is the direction we want to go. Let's read it together. Let's discuss it. Let's see what stuck out to you, dear. Let your wife explain what she's heard. Praise God for what he's taught her. And, and then you can help say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. How can God help us to practice that together, family? And press on. We have a need. We have a need. And you know what? Our children need to see this. We shouldn't have to wait till they go off to Bible school. Shouldn't have to wait till they go off to the youth ministry or to some other place. They can learn it we can we can learn together and stand strong and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're already doing that. I praise God. But it's a it's it's a a felt need in the body of Christ. We can't just lean on a few people who we think have more more understanding than us. We've all got a part to play in the body. And I believe with all the praying that we've been doing, for all that we see God doing, I believe we're on the verge of something new. When I think about even just the Monday night outreach in soccer, God could have let that thing rain out a long time ago with no loss to us, a little boost in the budget maybe, but He hasn't. But we haven't necessarily seen the fruit. Is he asking us to move forward in some way? To put a little bit more on the altar? Maybe we can, as we together make these offerings and sacrifices to God, as we as individuals lay ourselves out before God, as we as families lay ourselves out before God, and as we come together as a body of believers seeking to do the same thing together, I believe God's going to do something new. But you know what it said here? Then God spoke. Then. Are we there yet? Are we there? Let's seek the Lord. Let's ask Him to speak. Let's ask Him to guide. Show us where He's going. He told Israel, go. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt. Hey, we're as close to Egypt as you can think of. But I want God at the head. I want Him to lead. I want Him to move. And let's see what He will do in our own midst today. Father, help, (laughs) we cry out to you. Here is this man that we often hold up as a poor example, a deceiver, a usurper, but he has become for us an example. He has gone back to that place of the oath and made offerings to God bringing all with him and you spoke to him you assured him of what you were doing and encouraged him to proceed in that journey and father I just pray that you would help us help us and I pray especially for us as men Lord that you give us the courage it's a scary thing to step out in the unknown but to look at ourselves and our families and to look up to you and to respond in whatever way you should show us according to your word I thank you again for that precious word, Lord. It's our lifeline. As we seek to run this race in a way that is pleasing to you, to make ourselves holy, acceptable to you as living sacrifices, may we indeed do it not out of some ritual, but out of just a a loving response, a reasonable response, in view of the mercies that you have shown us through Jesus Christ our Savior. For it's in his name that we pray, it's in his name that we've gathered today. May he indeed be exalted. Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.